0: But today, our guest is Nefertiti Austin. She writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood. Her work around this topic has been shortlisted for literary awards and appeared in the Huffington Post, HuffPost Live, and The Atlantic. Nefertiti's expertise stems from first-hand experience and degrees in US history and African-American studies. And are you gonna read from the book? No, I'm gonna talk about it. Talk about it, okay, cool. Um,
1: Okay. Hello. Thank you. I don't think I need a mic. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Okay. 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 So, um, oh, I forgot to bring my book down. But here it is. Okay. So, um, this is my first foray into nonfiction, my first nonfiction book. And essentially, in 2006, I was ready to become a mother and I really, really, really wanted to adopt. And so um, I would go to the library, go to the bookstore, go to the internet, looking for narratives, mom narratives. This is like the height of the mommy wars, and there were shitty moms, and slacker moms, and all of these moms, and those stories were so funny, except I was not anywhere on the page. And so I thought, wow, I know other mothers who are black and who fit all of these same criteria, and yet we are not part of this particular conversation. So early on, I began writing, my early writing were rants, race and gender and adoption, and it was sort of like a rage against the machine, and where are we, and why can't we be part of this discussion? And then eventually, I sort of refined my message, and I had a bunch of essays that covered everything from changing a child's name, which is a no-no in the adoption world, to, why the election of Barack Obama was important to a single black mother of a black boy, and just other kind of day-to-day parenting things, and so I um, started working. I, I, my agent and I had, we had a plan, and then my editor, because I thought, oh, I've got this great collection of essays, and my editor was like okay this is cute but it's like really academic and we really need your story and so she's like cuz you you cover heavy material here and we want it to be accessible for the reader and so ultimately my story is that i was raised by my grandparents because my parents were part of the black power movement and they both got in off on drugs and were committing crime and so there was really no one to take care of us and so my pr- maternal grandparents raised us and so from their example, I knew that you didn't have to give birth to take care of children and your family or children out in the world. And I also learned that culturally that that's something black people do. We take in relatives, we take in neighbors, we take in church members because there's a sense of familiarity. We know these people, we have a point of reference. And what I didn't learn until after I adopted was that I would be an outlier in my own community because I adopted not one, but two children whom I didn't know. And so I began the adoption process. And I, I adopted here in California. and. And I hear in other places it's it's a little trickier. If you're a single woman in California, the rules are a little more relaxed. And I get through the process, and I began to share with my friends, hey, I'm planning to adopt, and I got laughter from some folks. And then I started to get pushback from men when I shared, oh, I want a little boy. And I really want a black boy because they are least likely to be adopted. But what men said to me was, how will you raise a boy on your own? And I thought, really? You know, in the 21st century, we're still questioning a woman's ability to raise children? And I just kind of put that aside. And then I told my family after the fact that, okay, I plan to adopt. And my family was really sort of like, well, why would you do that? And they had bought into the myth that was very pervasive at the time that children in foster care were crack babies. They were somehow broken. They were defective. And why would you set yourself up for you know, such a ride? And I just really kind of ignored that because I knew that that wasn't the whole story. And so I, um, I get my son, and it was a game changer in terms of it's, it's one thing intellectually preparing for a child is very different from being pregnant. And so he arrives, and sort of all of everything goes out the window. I'm starting completely over. But we got into a groove, and I'll get into more of that a little bit later. But what really happened to me, which really shaped sort of the story that I ultimately share in my memoir is when he was five, I took him to a rally. It was a Black Lives Matter rally for uh, Trayvon Martin, for his, his mom. And we lived in Beverly Hills at the time, and it's in the evening, but I think this is important and we should go. So we're outside, and it was really windy that night. It was kind of cold, and I had dressed him in a, a Gap hoodie, a little black hoodie. And I'm standing on the street corner waiting for the light to change on Wilshire and Gale Drive, and I turn to him, and I pull his hoodie up. And it was in that act of protecting him from the cold, of being his parent and wanting him to physically be warm that I had a revelation that, wow, 10 years from now he will be 15, and then he'll be 16, and someone will mistake my child in a dark hoodie with his hood up at night for a threat, and it scared me. And it was sort of my my baptism into black motherhood. So I knew becoming a mom would mean I would have to teach him to tie his shoelaces and, and teach him to read and, and attempt to teach him to pee standing up, which didn't go so well. Um, I tried it, though. Um, but I never, ever knew that the other part of my job would be to keep him safe, to keep him physically safe from, of course, running out into the street, but really to keep his body safe from racism, from microaggressions, from a world out there that will look at him and not see the five-year-old I saw who was an authority on dinosaurs and who knew all of the planets of the solar system, but others who perceived him as a threat. And so I began to really think about, well, what does this mean for me? as a mother, as a black mother in America. How will I raise him? And that was really the beginning of me sort of stealing his innocence, because at that point I had to then make him aware that when you walk down the street, people are going to judge you based on your skin color, and that's not fair. And when we're in the store and you ask, can you hang out in the toy aisle, as children like to do, and I tell you, sure, but don't touch, please don't touch the toys, and you ask me why, and I say because someone here may think you're stealing, even though you know you're not stealing, but again, it's the perception, and it's that perception that I had to really open his eyes to at a very, very young age. And so it's definitely, it's, it's heartbreaking as the mother of children of color, because while there are certain universalities within motherhood, there are cultural nuances that are really important, and there are things that we have to talk about. And when our kids become school age, I remember an issue, in kindergarten through fourth grade, and there were things as simple as my child, I'd get an email, oh, he was um, disruptive, was, would be the word, or aggressive, would be the word. And at play dates and just spending time with all the children, you see the kids pretty much act alike. Um, or he's angry and having to really educate the white female teachers at our wonderful school and I, I love 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 the school having to educate them about certain language and that perhaps he was Frustrated, or maybe he was annoyed. annoyed. There were so many emotions he may have been experiencing way before we get to the word anger. And why is it that the word anger is the first word that comes to mind? So having to challenge a lot of racial bias within education. And this is a very, very safe space in which we are in. So I, um, I have my son, and I have this new hat on as black mother and really being even more of a helicopter mom than I probably would have been ordinarily, just really trying to keep him safe. And he starts to ask for a sibling. And so my first answer was, absolutely not. Um, I had plans for myself. So my plan, I was going to adopt a child, because I really, really, really wanted to do that. So I checked that box. Then I was going to get married and have children. But I wasn't really seeing anyone, so that didn't quite work out. And so he's begging for a sibling. And so finally I cave, and I'm thinking, ooh, we'll get another little boy I'm going to adopt. I go to the agency, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this again. I want a little boy. And he starts asking for a sister. And so I thought, oh, no, that's, that'll never do because I cannot comb hair. And then little girls turn four and all of this, you know, I don't want to be bothered with that and periods. And uh, I was like, I can't. And so um, – Sometimes I speak at classes for prospective adoptive uh, parents and I'm telling my story and the social worker says, he's got a sibling and would you be open to him meeting his sibling? And I thought about it and I said, okay, sure. And we go to a birthday party and we knew that there was one brother. So my son is number seven. So we knew there was number eight. Then we knew there was number nine and we get to the party, and there's a baby, and I'm like, who is that? And they're like, this is number 10, and I don't hold people's kids, and I was like, may I hold her? And, of course, now she lives with me. She's six going on seven, and so that was definitely a fluke, but they are biological siblings. Ultimately, it was meant to be, and so now I wear, I've got like three hats that I wear. So I've got my mama black boy's hat. I've got my mom a black girl's hats because as she comes of age, I'm also seeing the same thing with how sometimes her behavior is described. And so I'm back to the drawing board with, could it be that she was annoyed with her friend, that she was bothered or that she was tired, not that she was angry. You know? So here we go all over again uh, with these uh, same conversations with regard to raising children of color in America where there are still stereotypes attached to behavior depending on the race of the children. So I, I wrote um, Motherhood to White for a couple of reasons. Um, the most important reason was so that the next single woman, especially a single black woman who is considering an alternate path to creating her family, to have a point of reference, to have a book that she can open and see herself on the page. So this is the book I wish that I had had. It's it's my story. I'm certainly not writing on behalf of, you know, all black mothers, so I, you know, we we have so much diversity within our culture, of course. And I wrote it for white mothers as well because I think that we have a lot that we can share with one another. Um, I kind of felt like there was white motherhood and then everybody else. And so here's an opportunity to bring white moms into our world and what we think and to be able to support each other and for white moms to know that if your child is walking if my child is hanging out with your child and they're walking home from school and your child normally takes a shortcut on that day please tell your child not to do that because if the neighbor gets startled and they call the police or anything my child will be the one who's in trouble not yours. And so those are just things that we need to think about so that we can really take care of each other. And I think that there's so much power that moms have with regard to um, family leave, quality child care, so many political issues that impact all of us directly, and that if we could come together, I think we could really, really make a difference in the quality of people who are coming into the world, and we can work together and, and be much happier than we are currently. In any event, so that's my story, and that's why I wrote my memoir. So there. Any um, questions or comments? I I can. You want me to? Okay. 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 So um, I think this is probably. Okay. So think this will be right here okay okay so I'm going to read from this section of uh, about baby names and so as I mentioned I very intentionally changed um, my son's name and when my daughter came I changed her name as well and um, okay so I think she's good so the name of this chapter is his name is what from the moment I knew I was ready to become a mother, I had been thinking of baby names. Would I go on trend and choose Caden, Jaden, Jordan, Logan, or Chance? Go classic with Michael, Christopher, David, or Marcus. Dig into the family archives for Henry or John. I could try an old school name like Samuel, Clyde, or Lawrence, or make a racially conscious choice like my parents did and mine the motherland for Sundiata, Akita, or Lamumba. Knowing I wanted a child who was at least half black, I might honor our community and reach for Andre, Taurus, Samaj, Booker, Treba, or Antoine. There was no shortage of creative names among black people who subconsciously remembered a time when they could not take ownership of naming their babies. The internet had hundreds of baby boy listicles, I kept telling myself that my son would come with a name and I knew that a new name would reshape his identity and define my role as his mother. During the PS MAP training, prospective foster adoptive parents were taught to accept a child in all his glory. Names like religious practices were links to their heritage. We were to respect and uphold those traditions. To ignore or deny such cultural markers suggested the child's origins were insignificant. Abrupt, change, abrupt changes had the ability to destroy a child's self-esteem, causing him to feel lost and isolated. It was the foster adoptive parent's responsibility to do everything in her power to ease his transition from word of the state to forever family. I was totally on board with these recommendations, even though I already had a name in mind. I was a huge fan of playwright August Wilson and loved that August meant grand and inspiring reverence or admiration. I knew I wasn't the first foster adoptive parent to consider changing a child's name and suspected it was a common occurrence, especially with infants. But what about toddlers? Was it even ethical to change the name of a three or four year old person? Would the new name cause additional confusion for a child who had an attachment with his biological or foster parents and was moved from their home to a new placement with a strange lady who declared, I'm your mama? Mixing a new school, siblings, friends, and the navigation of a new neighborhood. All of the sudden newness newness with its good intentions was a guaranteed recipe for shutting down or acting out. I met a fellow adoptive mom who also changed her foster son's name. Eighteen years earlier, Cynthia's son was two years old when they became a forever family. Not a fan of the birth parent's selected name, she dropped the first syllable and called him by the last half of his given name. Before he knew it, she capitalized the final syllable, then added the middle name of the men in her family. Voila, a new designation. I got it. The plans we had for our boys were light years north, south, east, and west of where they were born. Kamarie would not know the difference until he was older. In 2003, an old debate was resurrected with a CBS News article, Black Names, a Resume Burden, a century ago, whites and blacks more or less shared race-neutral names like Donna, Linda, Sandra, Robert, and Adam. In the 1960s, Stokely Carmichael stirred souls with black power and a hypercultural awareness of ties to Africa and, and I'm sorry, intimated with the Anglo-Saxon names of the 1940s and 1950s were outdated and corny. My parents were certainly of this mindset as they shed their slave names and gave me and my brother African and Arabic names. While those African connections were necessary and relevant in the late 1960s through the 1970s, I agreed with the CBS News article that some folks got too imaginative and now their adult children's resumes were placed in the round file. Even so, I understood this creativity to be an act of resistance. We should be free to name our children whatever we want without stigma. The article further cited a study that concluded, after responding to 1,300 classified ads with dummy resumes, the authors found black-sounding names were 50% less likely to get a callback than white-sounding names with comparable resumes. Camarier's government name was Camarier Lester Jefferson, which was fine for the block, but too musical for the hills. Translation, my baby needed a new name. Naming in the black community was political, sacred, and sometimes made people ask, His name is what? Names denoted geography, political thrust of an era, social and economic status. They situated us in our tribe, advertised our ambitions, and sometimes defined our life path. Naming was powerful and explained why people spent months thinking of just the right name for their baby. Anyone who saw roots knew that Kunta Kinte was adamant that he not be called Toby. At the time of his capture, he was old enough to know his native tongue, his parents, and the long history of his tribe, the Mandinkas of Jufaray. Once on American shores and the property of another man, Kuncha was forced by Lash to concede to the name Toby. At night, when the overseer was out of sight, Kuncha secretly prayed to Allah and recited the names of his ancestors. He was proud of his heritage and never lost connection to the land that birthed him a powerful acknowledgement of the significance of naming in our culture. There were alternate perspectives on the ramifications of Black-sounding names. In an academic article, The Causes and Consequences of Distinctly Black Names, the authors posited, among Blacks born in the last two decades, names provided a strong signal of socioeconomic status, which was not previously the case. We find, however, no negative causal impact of having a distinctively black name on life outcomes. Although that result is seemingly in conflict with previous audit studies involving resumes, we argue that the two sets of findings can be reconciled. The data would be reconciled when black folks were the resume gatekeepers. We needed to be the ones to vet Lajeunet Jackson's paperwork and if everything was in order, place it in the trademark to be interviewed. I made this point at my monthly book club meeting. We were talking about Edward P. Jones's The Known World, drinking Pinot Noir, eating shrimp etouffee, and discussing this very topic. We were all college educated, black professionals, and three out of five of us had kids. We agreed that black people needed to be globally competitive, especially on the corporate level. Made-up names like too many tattoos or piercings on black skin would amount to extra stripes, and an already uneven playing field, thus limiting opportunities for blacks to get ahead economically and socially. More live and let let live than my compatriots. I accused them of being snobs, though I was equally amused by some of the names. My friend Alita had a name, Naomi, who named her daughter Solomon. Alita assumed Naomi gave her daughter a boy's name to ensure a callback on future resumes. Naomi challenged her by listing the names of their friends. Fadana, China, Kida, Kenya, Malika. She reminded Alita that they were all very successful with medical and law degrees, six-figure incomes, and tenured college professorships. Because of their success, Naomi wasn't worried about a resume. She liked the name Solomon and didn't have to bend gender naming rules to ensure that her daughter would taste success as an adult. White people in America had the power, so they made rules regarding which baby names were economically acceptable. So Apple Peterson's resume would be pushed up the food chain because both white and black gatekeepers would assume that Apple was white. While the black community's naming process was similar to that of whites, family trees, classic literature, spiritual and religious influences, and socioeconomic status directly impacted naming choices, White privilege shielded white people from worrying that their child's first name would interfere with or deny them employment opportunities. Aristocratic names like Fitzgerald conjured images of old money, wealth, and power, not a little black boy, unless he was upper middle class or poor and his mama had high aspirations. Whatever the reason, the mighty job application was the line in the sand. I did not change Camarier's name to fit a particular image, but rather to give him a new start. I chose a name that bespoke the arts, global travel, higher education, service to others, and success. My baby didn't know it, but my black-powered lineage, middle-class upbringing, and bourgeois bohemian lifestyle had informed my decision to choose a name that reflects his new familial lineage, lineage. I informed Kathy, that was our social worker, that Camarie Lester Jefferson would now be known as August. Changing his name made him mine. Satisfied with my son's new name, I gave my friends a green light to stop by to meet August for the first time. Lori and her son came over bright and early after August's placements. and they were, our first visitor, they were our first visitors, and they met my son with his new name. He was six months old when we met, and then two weeks later, he came and moved in, and it took about two years, so just under two years from start to finish. No, the day he came through the door, I I had a name in mind, and I was open to looking at him again, like, is this going to fit? And I kind of felt like it fit, and so far, I mean, it's great. No, he's he's lived up to it. It's been good. Yeah. Twelve. Yes, he was 12, yes. Um, How
0: did your family and friends, like, how did their journey with accepting your your foster
1: children, -hmm. how has that played out? Well, initially, it was not pretty. Uh, Initially, so even though I was raised by grandparents, they were very middle class, very conservative, and I had broken so many sort of cultural rules. I had gone to law school for a year. I'd gotten kicked out because I was writing my own book instead of reading. And um, so, um, but once my first book came out, that was kind of like forgiven that I did not become a lawyer. And so um, I, I just, I don't know why they were surprised, but in any event, they really looked at it like okay, now you're going to have baggage, no man's going to marry you, you know, and you've got this baby. Which was surprising that that was sort of their overall sort of feeling, um, but once he came, of course, you know, then everything was out the window. Um, my grandfather's biggest concern was childcare. He was very like, "Well, who's going to take care of him?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Don't worry, I'm not going to bring another generation for you guys to raise. I, I, I got it." So. Mm-hmm. I am from California. I did not finish law school. Um, no disrespect to any lawyers in the <laughs> building, but um, I found it to be incredibly boring. So, no, I did not finish. No, not even close to being my thing. But as, oh, so when I was in junior high, I wanted to do two things. I always wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to be a lawyer. And I, I got the message sort of that, you know, it's doctor, teacher, lawyer. And so the hope is that you choose a traditional path so that you can take care of yourself and take care of your family and you have retirement. And so I obviously buck tradition just every which way. So I, I, I tried, but it was boring. It was not for me. So, so anyway, I did. I did change her name. Um, so it's Cherish. Um, and actually, I changed their names in the book just for their own safety. And so um, I I did change her. Her first name was okay, but again, for me, it was like a fresh start, and I just kind of felt like, okay, slate's wiped clean, we're going to start over. So when my daughter came to live with us, she was 10 months old, and um, like I said, she's number 10, so all the kids have the same mother. And um, I just felt like, this would be an opportunity just to kind of give us all a fresh start as a family. So. Adults now, but they were some, most were adopted. The eldest three boys were not adopted. So they fell into that black boys not being, they got shuffled from home to home. So, but my kids are where, are where they are adopted. I told them since before they could talk, you know, I didn't want anyone else to tell them. And they know their birth names. And so we have photo albums at home that they have access to whenever they want. And I, I'm very open with them, age appropriately, of course, with when they ask, well, you know, why was I adopted? Or, and they don't even ask that question. They want to know. Um, my son went through a, a period like around the fourth grade when he was very adamant, like I really want to see my birth father. And he ha- so he, he's got me, so mom was kind of less of an issue, but really wanting to see. And I explained to him that when he becomes an adult, I will help him find, you know, but that it's, it's not time. So, so. yes. I think the bigger issue is timing. Timing is key, and, and that, that's tricky. So I think 17 too young. I think 18 too young. I'm thinking 25, 30, because we talk about the fantasy of birth parents versus the reality, especially when they're in trouble with me and they're mad at me. And... Um, <laughs> And so, but I have explained that I know you think that if you were with a different family that it would just be roses and sunshine all the time, and that's, that's not true because that's not real, that's not life. And I think not a fear, but perhaps um, concern that he will be disappointed and, so, and, and wanting him to be old enough to handle that disappointment. yes exactly it's yes yes mm. No, and I've heard too many horror stories. Like thirteen and fourteen, you know, they meet their birth parents, and they're, you know, on this path, and they just go, you know. So I I wouldn't do that to them. So yeah. So. Mm Mhm. Oh, I'm I'm here. Good. Do you? uh, I'm not sure how many other people were in your. Or if you were in your group
0: when you were going to adoption classes. Mm Mhm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, do you do you have any opinions on that? About, mm-hmm. You know, should white people adopt white children? Mm-hmm. You know, Hispanic people adopt Hispanic children. Sure. Is, it, is it better or does it not? What's your opinion?
1: Um. Well, I think whoever will adopt the children in need of a home, I'm fine. I mean, you know, they need a home. So the issue isn't that. The issue turns on the education. So if you go public in California – you go one of two ways. You can go through Los Angeles County of Department of Children and Family Services. That's what I did, or you can go through. Um, I think it's called a Family Foster Care Agency, and so you get training. So they train you on who are the children in foster care, how did the children get there? So the children typically are in foster care due to neglect and abuse. Those are the the typical reasons. It, it's not someone. Oh, I didn't want my. I don't want my baby. Like that's that very rarely happens, so you get that type of information. You get some cultural information, but there really just isn't enough time, so it's incumbent upon people, if you adopt transracially, you know, whatever that looks like, you have to do your homework on the children who are coming into your home. So if you have a Latinx child, and it's a she, then at 15, you know, you need to be saving your money so she can have a quinceañera when she's 15. And if you get a black child, then you need to know things that are important to our community is that they have lotion and that their hair is combed appropriately. And if you can't do it, and that's where this making friends with the people in your child's school and be like real friends with them so it isn't like I just go to your house for a play date like you come to my house too and develop those friendships so you can have honest conversations about what's happening in the classroom. So I do have friends who have adopted transracially, and I have told them if it doesn't feel right in here, it's not right, So, and it's okay. Please use your privilege to take care of the children and support them. oh you're welcome thank you Uh yes use your white privilege you got it use it yes absolutely yes oh thank you oh thank you oh thank you very much it was hard Um, I Rejected by almost 60 agents who all said the same thing. They said, um, oh, this is important and you're a good writer, but it's too marginal. It's not going to sell. And so, um, you know, so all over the country. So when you send a query, you just send it wherever the agents are. And that was consistently the response was, I'm not going to be able to sell it. Because at the end of the day, it is a business. And it's like, you know, we're not going to be able to sell it. And so luckily somebody said yes.
0: How how is it doing? I, I don't know when it came out.
1: Two weeks ago. Yeah, it just just came out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So it's exciting. It's, you know, it's like okay. It is very exciting because we're in a time right now in this country
0: where um I think people are it's the abuse of power or imbalance yes. it's coming to the surface and it's
1: ugly. Yes but it's necessary. Yes. Yes.
0: Still in that. Yes. Like, they haven't moved out
1: of exactly. Exactly. Oh, yes. I got it. I heard you loud and clear. I uh-huh. Have one other oh, sure. Uh, what is your,
0: I would just love to just hear your thoughts on mm-hmm. like the, like the savior complex that mm-hmm. uh, some people who want to adopt mm-hmm. have just in terms of like, well, I'm, I'm here. Yes. And I, you're, like, you should be lucky. Right. Just, yeah, what, that's what your, ugly. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that's ugly. I think it's very ugly. Um, Do
0: you see people like moving away from it? Do you see like the foster system maybe kind of training people to have that self-awareness? Hmm.
1: You know what? That's part of the training. Like that comes up kind of like early on. But I think it's just an individual thing. Um, I forget my kids are adopted. So, you know, they are – we are so much a part of each other's lives. I mean, they are my children, and I have to – remember oh yeah that's right you didn't come for me but I've got like six seven extra pounds on me that suggests otherwise because I was not this heavy before um so I I don't think of it in those terms and people are um attempt to be very well-meaning and they will say to me oh you're doing such a great thing or they'll say to the kids oh aren't you lucky which I think is very rude And so I make a point to correct that and say, well, no, I'm the lucky one. And even in sharing my kids' adoption story with them, I always lead with, you know, thank you for choosing me. And, you know, I met you and the social worker brought us together, but ultimately you decided. Because when they're infants, there's no, like, oh, I I like walks in the park and red wine and what about, you know, it's none of that. It's really just chemistry. So either it's going to be a good thing or it's not. And so I, I make a point to tell them, you know, you chose me, and I thank you that you chose me, and that I get to participate in this journey with you. Yeah, so.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.